One of my mentors emphasizes beginning with the end in mind, and very clearly that is one point of focus for Mike Cackley, who is convinced that we don't need to prepare students for some day, but that they should take on meaningful work right now, no matter their age. Mike is a teacher with over 20 years experience, and he's an author. Mike is also a consultant who helps educators across the country shift towards student-centered inquiry through workshops that combine project-based learning, PBL, and social-emotional learning, SEL. His book, Pulse of PBL, Cultivating Equity Through Social-Emotional Learning, provides multiple ways to teach, practice, and assess foundational SEL skills through a PBL framework. Mike is National Faculty Emeritus with PBL Works through the Buck Institute of Education. Be sure to check this note show's notes for learning more about Mike's contributions. And welcome to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. My name is Nene White, and I am so glad that you are here. Thank you. Hi, Mike. Um, it's really good to have you here. Thank you very much for finding the time. <laughs> we had a few technical glitches, but we're, we're here. We made it. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I read a blog post that, or a, an article that you wrote, and I thought it was fascinating because it was so clear and concise about misconceptions that are floating around about social emotional learning. And so I just wanted to touch on a couple of them. And then I want to um, ask you about what your solutions are, because this podcast is about solutions, actionable solutions, and really supporting and uh, helping teachers who who know how important SEL is. So the first misconception that I thought was, yeah, you called it laughable that uh, there are some administrators that think if you just buy a ready-made SEL curriculum, then um, just give it to the teachers and once a week or once a day, boom, problem solved. Give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, whenever I share this with teachers, they always kind of smile knowingly because this is what happens in a lot of places. And example I would give to how this approach, in my opinion, is would be like taking your kid to driver's education and having them go through the class and taking the class, but never getting in a car. And so learning all about the rules of the road and stuff, but never actually practicing driving. And then just giving them a license and saying, hey, they're good to go. And so we do this a lot in education where we talk about things, but we never have students experience them. So we know from research that for SEL to be effective, there's two things that needs to happen. It needs to be modeled by adults, first of all. And then second of all, it needs to be integrated throughout the day. So it can't just be a one-off with the early elementary, it's usually like a morning meeting with secondary. It's an advisory class where some kind of content is covered, but then it's just separated and it doesn't really hit home 
with students to make a difference. Right. Painful. And, and yeah, that word separated pulled out for me just now, you know, why, I, I mean, I want to hear your thoughts on why it can't be, mustn't be, shouldn't be, doesn't make sense to separate SEL from everything else. Well, it's, it's kind of the Western culture and mindset to com, com, compartmentalize everything. And what it becomes is just another subject then. It's like, oh, we did SEL and it's a checkbox to say that we did it because I, I think most people realize it's important after COVID and such, there's been a huge emphasis on it, which is right. important, but a lot of places are just scrambling to say, hey, we did it versus it's SEL to me is about culture and it's about building that into kids and who they are. And so you can't just do that as a side thing. It's, it's gotta be core. It's gotta be part and parcel of everything you do all day long. Right, right. And then the word that popped out for me this time was culture. And that culture can have a lot of layers of meeting too. It could, you and I might share the same culture because we have the same amount of melanin in our skin or the same lack of melanin in our skin. And we probably have some cultural reference points that are similar, but people with browner skin will have different cultural reference points. So how is a teacher supposed to deal with that in a way that's respectful and um, effective and nurturing for her, his or her students? And why would that be important, of course? Yeah, well, well one of the other misconceptions is that SEL is just used for behavior management. Oh. And it's used to, sometimes poorly to control kids for compliance, which is, is really a cultural institution in, in a lot of our schools. So the, and this is particularly disturbing when we're talking about children of color because mm. it can be used to just kind of whitewash them and even weaponized SEL where it's trying to change them into middle-class white values. And that's something that, in particular, I think white educators really have to guard against, but um, we want to make sure that we're not looking at as students of color from a deficit viewpoint, but that we're looking at their cultural strengths and assets that they bring to the table. So the, the story I like to tell is I, I, I've recently written a book and my co-author, her name is Matinga Regatz, and she is from Equatorial Guinea, which is on the western coast of Africa. What's her name and again? Matinga Regatz. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, Matinga, Dr. Matinga Regatz. I always got to remember that part. Yes. She, she just earned her doctorate. So congrats to her. Yes. But Matinga has this amazing Afro and it's just the coolest hair. But yeah. The thing about Matinga, when she goes to the store, she can't just go down the shampoo aisle like I do and get head and shoulders. No, she has to go to a separate aisle, an ethnic aisle, and find the specialty shampoo for her hair. And what is happening here, and oftentimes it's been documented that these hair products are in her lock and key, or they're by the pharmacy with a camera on them. And what's happening is she's being othered, and they're acting like black hair is some special thing, and it's not quote-unquote normal. 
So her hair product isn't in the shampoo aisle with the normal products, but has to be somewhere else. And if we're not careful, we're guilty of doing the same thing in schools. Mm -hmm. And we other students of color, when we try to do treat them in ways that uh, we have to do something special for them or something. And so we true equity is built into SEL and it's built into everything we do on the, on the day-to-day basis. And we want to each honor each student culturally for their strengths and where they come from and not try to change them to values that we might have. That's, that really made me think about this othering concept that, you know, and I've been, I've been wrestling with this for a while about how do you, what are your thoughts on how you see people that are different from you without othering them? I mean, it's quite a, I want to hear what you think about that. You know, how you can, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a work of the heart. I think, I think it takes the heart to get involved. It's not just a head head game. Sorry, I keep interrupting you when you start. Oh, Go no, ahead. It's fine. It, I mean, I think it's, we all know we have to start off with relationship with kids and get to know them and cultures, but of course, no one can be knowledgeable and master of every culture out there. So right. it, it's most important just about having an open mind and letting your students teach you about who they are. And so we want our students to become self-experts of their own cultural values and construct their own perspectives on how they're going to be successful rather than impose our values onto students that may or may not be compatible with uh, the values in their homes and in what they grow up with. Yeah. And yet we all have to live together. It's, it's, it's quite a good, um, quite a good challenge and a very real one, but I think at least it, le- it needs to be acknowledged and uh, looked at squarely so that we can say, okay, this, this takes some expansion of, of thinking and Yeah. I mean, I I enjoy, I'm not so much talking about my own experience. I can do it kind of intuitively, but when I try to think about it and unpack it, you know, and that's what you, you do, you are doing and bringing into classrooms. And so that's why I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts because on any degree, it's a challenge for all of us to really, because even when I'm in situations where I used to um, help a friend of mine who taught in Oakland, which um, you're in, where are you? I'm in Michigan. Michigan. Okay. But Oakland, you've probably heard of it, that it's, you know, it's mainly a, a black city in a lot of ways. And she's a white friend of mine, but she taught in a mainly black school and it t- you know, and my heart was totally in it, but my, I, I had to adjust to the volume levels and the ways of communicating and all of that, which I welcomed the challenge, but um, it's quite something what we have to do with our thinking and our automatic responses. I, I don't know what I'm trying to get out of you right now, but I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that. Yeah, well, one of the examples is sometimes teachers will say to 
students. And again, looking at the compliance and control of make sure yeah. you're using the indoor voice and yeah. they're focused more on the volume that they are comfortable with right. in the classroom than what students are comfortable with. Right, right, right. And, and if they would stop and think about this young student who may be being really loud and ask themselves, first of all, why are they loud and what are they talking about? And they might see that this student is actually really excited about something they're discovered with their learning. And so sometimes teachers are more worried about policing the volume than they are about, is this student on task or not? And so it becomes, again, this tool for control rather than acknowledging the, uh, what's happening with the student. On the, on the other hand, in some cultures, especially some indigenous cultures, there, there could be the opposite side where yeah. you know, they might be taught that it's disrespectful to look a teacher in the eye and or an adult in the eye. And so when you say, hey, look at me when I'm talking to you, yeah. which is a pretty standard value in, in my culture, right. that that's actually really offensive to them. They've been taught not to look at someone in the eye. And so there's just that disconnect. And in that same, for example, the Inuit culture, it might be a much more quiet culture. And, and in that case, the classroom would be quieter. And we just have to adjust and let kids tell us and tell each other. And so it's okay if you have someone from a culture who needs a little bit more quiet and space to maybe let that student work in the hallway or have a space in your room. You know, architects talk about caves, a place where the student can have some privacy or to teach students to respectfully say, hey, I, you know, I can't concentrate over here. You know, could you lower your volume a bit and let teach students to police themselves rather than we are policing them for volume, which may or may not be a problem because if you see kids on the playground, they can be interacting pretty loud and still be working as a team or in a sporting event. So it's not like loud atmosphere is necessarily uh, against learning. I mean, a lot of people like to work in Starbucks. It's right. not exactly a quiet place. Right. Oh, I thank you. I got a lot out of that, actually. So then that brings me back to the, the teacher's own SEL and SEL growth and, and you know, self-explorations about what am I seeing? What am I allowing? What am I uh, including in, in my ability to interact with all of these kids? More respect, again, another layer of respect for teachers who are dealing with all of these challenges. Um, so you've been doing this for a while. What kind of rewards have you experienced by stretching in these ways, I wonder? I think, you know, over time, you, of course, get better. And yeah. you really develop deep relationships with kids. And, and kids start to trust you more. Right. You know, I, I'll share an example of a mistake I made. So I had a, I had a student, I was teaching math, sixth grade math, and this kid was one of my students who didn't apply himself very much. And I could tell based on what I saw from him that he was actually a really strong academic student, but he just wasn't very bought in. And so one day I challenged him, I don't remember what, but to, you know, kind of accomplish this thing and do this this task and his response to me was bet like I bet you and I misinterpreted that 
what he was saying was, you're challenging me to do this? I'll do it. I'll show you. I can do this. It was yeah. the exact response that as a teacher I was looking for. Yeah. But I, um, from my white perspective, saw, oh, he's challenging my authority. And he's like saying, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And actually, it was kind of a slang thing from his side that I didn't know. Yeah. And so uh, I got frustrated and upset with the student, leaving him feeling, what's wrong with this guy? Like he he's challenging me to do this work and I'm saying I'm going to do it. And now he's getting angry at me. Yeah. And so it's just an example of how we're probably all going to make mistakes and it's okay. Um, Apologize, fix it, move on. Unfortunately, in that situation, I didn't really realize it till probably like a year later when I had had it happen with other students and I learned the slang. I'm like, and then it kind of hit me. That's what that kid was saying to me. And I misinterpreted it. So yeah. We, we, we just have to read body language. You have to read all those things. And, and we're going to make mistakes. And it's okay. We learn yeah. and we move on. When you know better, you do better. That's my yeah. Angelo says. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I noticed is, and I've read this too, it's just that when students see that we, we own up to the fact that we don't understand something or something is going over our head, then we can just say, what does that mean? Bet. I don't understand. You know? then i mean that's a sign of respect just ask what what does that mean i i don't (laughs) so um yeah it's kind of like eyes widen from students when they see us you know just wanting to learn from them you know and being open and wanting to understand their perspective it's it's a lovely beautiful powerful trust building interaction yeah yeah so um, CASEL, the Collaboratives for Social Emotion and Emotional Learning, um, identifies the six SEL competencies. And then they recently added inclusivity, which is quite good of them. So um, I think, do you write about that in your book, which we want to talk about now? And what's the title of your book? Also of PBL, Cultivating Equity Through Social Emotional Learning. Right. And, and you, um, you're recommending a lot of PBL uh, project-based learning to integrate the SEL, which, of course, is the most natural way to get the driver who took the driver's test to get behind the wheel. Exactly. Yeah. So, so go, yeah. going back to that CAN curriculum, if yeah. we know that's not effective and we right. need students to be doing SEL all day long and we really believe it's important, then we're lying to ourselves if we're not going to teach, practice, and assess the SEL skills. That's what we need to do. Right. And from my perspective, PBL isn't the only way, but project-based learning is a great framework for kids to daily be doing that because they're working on teams, they're solving problems in their community. So they're going to be having all the interactions and all the opportunities to think, process, build empathy, all these skill sets. Collaborate. Yes, the competencies list are going to naturally need to occur. Now, they're not always going to happen naturally. We're, that's why we have to teach these skills. Right. And, you know, some... I work with a lot of teachers around the country from 
kindergarten to college. And some teachers will say to me, well, my students aren't ready for this yet. You know, they can't handle uh, some voice and choice, some autonomy. And what I would always ask them is if your student comes to you and doesn't know how to read, do you say, oh, my student doesn't know how to read and that's how it is. So, right. or do we teach them how to read? Right. And so we should expect that every student is going to come to us with some strengths and weaknesses in the SEL competencies. Adults are the same way. We never master all of these competencies all the time. And so we need to have a plan and how we're going to teach them. And one of the ways to teach them is we got to give them an opportunity to practice. Yeah. Consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Consistency, I think, is the huge part of it. Yeah. And so can you give us an example of a project that first graders will do or kindergartners or? Sure. Um, I'm thinking of... Uh drawing a blank on the one I had in mind, but oh. <laughs> the one, one uh, project that I uh, worked with some teachers on, and, and this was a, a rural school in Wisconsin, and they were, I often hear teachers say, well, we want to work with the community, but there's just not much opportunity because we're just out in the middle of boondocks and there aren't businesses and such. Well, they worked with the leading organization of employer in the area and it happened to be a cranberry farm and mm -hmm. so they took their kids out into the bog did a whole tour and the kids learned that actually craisins don't just come from the grocery store right and they they, they found the, the whole process of manufacturing them and, and getting them to the store and then that led to a project that was kind of the entry event if you will yeah where kids looked at different um food and how it, how it grew. And each student was assigned and chose, not assigned, but chose a different product of food. And they followed it from seed to the table. And they documented the whole way and learned all about it and presented it to the class. And of course, they grew some seeds and ex did some experiments with that. And the, one of the teachers told me that one of her students who was not the strongest academic student struggled in, in some of the areas, but man, he sure could tell you about a plum. Yeah. And, and that's where we start to build confidence in kids as they learn how public speaking can lead to confidence when kids yeah. are able to do this. And they learn some skill sets that really helps them become, that spreads over and gives them motivation into our content learning that, of course, we need them to do also. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. So they they did those projects in a group collaboratively or... Uh, I think they did them in pairs. Oftentimes pairs. with younger students, yeah, a group is a pair. You know, okay. a large group doesn't work so good for sure. our little. So yeah. oftentimes they'll they'll work with a partner and keep the group small, but they're still learning to interact and with each other and how to be successful and, and divide tasks and work together. Right, right. And so now part of me is imagining all the worst that could happen with he's not helping or she's do doing all of it or <laughs> so there's an opportunity a learning opportunity so what do you how do you advise the teachers in those kinds of situations well i think it's really important to do some collaborative activities most teachers do some team building things at the beginning of the year which is great but what a lot of teachers miss is the opportunity to grow on that and learn from that. So what I always tell teachers, after you do a team building activity, pull out the big chart 
just play it on your board, the castle competencies. Have kids have a discussion and reflection right then and there. What competencies do we use right now to accomplish this task? And it's usually a fun student-centered task. Have them list all those competencies out. You know, we had to collaborate. We had to communicate. We had to talk to each other. We needed to listen to each other. Uh, we, we couldn't all do our own thing at once. We had to take turns. Make a list of these. Make and build classroom norms around those things. Mm -hmm. And then three weeks later, when Johnny and Susie are in an argument and things are going horribly with this team, you can come up to them and say, hey, remember that activity we did and name it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Remember how in that activity we said we had to listen to each other and take turns? Mm -hmm. I think you guys need to do that right now. Mm -hmm. Let's practice that right now. How can you do that? Mm -hmm. And so I call these anchor activities because there's something kids are going to remember, the fun thing they did at the beginning of the year, mm -hmm. but we tie them to the castle competencies and we can reflect back on them when the inevitable conflicts happen. Right. Because I can promise you that that's like 80% of teaching in PBL is helping kids work together. Like that's where the teaching is. Right, right. Oh, beautiful. Wow, that's a rich answer. Thank you. Um, I love that. Um, now I want to get personal. You're here. You've dedicated a lot of years to this, this work. And I'm just wondering, do you mind giving us a little personal insights into why why this is so important to you? Yeah, I've, I mean, I'm a teacher who, from my philosophy of ed and 20 years ago and when I was in school, was whoever's doing is learning. And so I've always been believed in hands-on learning, active mm -hmm. learning, because mm -hmm. um, what I saw is when I lecture, man, I learn a lot because I have to do all this prep work. And that's right. what the learning is, not in the speaking, right. but in the prep work. Right. And then the kids sit there and they might pick up a couple things, but they forget most of what you say. And so I realized that they needed to be doing the prep work and they needed to be doing the speaking and, and flipping it uh, really puts the onus on them. And so the what I initially, I did a lot of PBL-ish kind of work, but I wasn't trained. And then later I became part of a comprehensive PBL school in my county and, and was trained by New Tech Network and also by um, BIE, Buck Institute for Education, now PBL Works, who I was a national faculty with for five years. And so I got the opportunity to really learn some structure and some strategies to what I was doing on my own. And it's always, it's what I saw, especially at my uh, comprehensive high school that I was at, is we had these kids bust in from 20 different districts all over the county. They were all kinds of different kids. They represented everything. We had the demographics that matched, whether it was race, gender, special education, EL kids, we had all these kids in there. And we were a lab school, so we had a lot of visitors. And people would come in and say, after touring our school, because we always had the kids do the tours, my mom and dad came in and visited, and I didn't give them a tour, I had some kids do it, because they just blow, they blow people away. Yeah. And after the tour, the, the adults would always say, man, this is awesome school, you have great space, and it's so cool that you're a magnet school and have all these amazing kids. And we'd be like, no. Uh, our kids are regular kids. They come from all different places. And this kid that just gave the tour to you, you might not realize it, but he's got a D in my class right now and has a 504 plan. So um, it's just that our students got really good at public speaking because they did it all the time and it yeah. became a strength. So yeah. no surprise, practice made them better at it. 
but I really saw the confidence grow in, in just how much students started to love learning at this school. And I realized like, why do my students get this? Why don't all students get this? Yeah. And so that's kind of my passion is just to see it spread and grow and for all kids to have op opportunities to have authentic learning experiences. Oh, hallelujah, brother. Authentic learning experiences where they're not saying, what does this have to do with me? Why would I ever use this? That question probably never comes up in, the, in your PBL situation. We try to answer it ahead of time. That, yes, exactly. 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 And then I want to go back because I, um, when you were talking about the, the young kids, you know, referring to the, the castle um, competencies, even in this classroom in this uh, pre, it was a transitional kindergarten class in Oakland. She had them, you know, under, learning and understanding just spontaneously through the flow of the day, big words, big multi-syllable words. And I just loved that for those kids because to think that we can only teach them single and double syllable words is just such a disrespectful, you know? And it's just shortcoming to everybody. And when, so do you recommend, like even with the little ones that they learned, let's see, what are some of the words, you know, like social awareness, self-management, self-awareness, you know? Do you bring those words into the little kids' classrooms? For sure. Yeah. So I mean, kids can learn the meaning of any word. We just exactly. have to take the time to, to teach it. So uh, I often show a video and it's a, at a school, I believe they're first or second graders giving feedback to a kid. And the, there's one young boy and he says, you know, he's confident and said he really persevered. And whenever I show that video, the teachers always laugh at him right. saying that word, but yeah. they just taught him that word. He knows what it means. Right. So yeah, they didn't feed it to him. It's not scripted. Right. It's culture. They right. build a culture where we give feedback to each other and it's meaningful. Right. And, and we know what some of these words are. So we use them. Right. So we, we saw kids way too short. I mean, we sometimes act like we're preparing kids for the future, which we are in a sense, but we act like they can't do anything right now. And that's where I believe that kids can do meaningful work right now. Uh, I'll tell you a story about a fifth grade class in Virginia. And this is one of my favorite stories of just showing what kids can do if we get out of the way a little bit. Yeah. These teachers, they set up their classroom to start this project and they put a bunch of green streamers and a bunch of just cut up green plastic and some junk all over their room. When the kids came in, they're like, what is going on in here? And so they led them into discussion to say, well, this represents all the algae at the beach, which was about two hours from them. And they then guided them down a discussion of food webs. And they landed with the fact that why is there so much, because the kids want to know, why is all this algae at our beach? Like, why is this happening? Well, it turns out that going up the food chain, there's not enough sharks because they're being overfished for their dorsal fin. And then the rest of the fish is usually thrown away and wasted. And so the kids were upset about this. They wanted to do something about it. And they learned that actually it was illegal to fish for the shark, but it wasn't illegal to buy the shark products from foreign fishermen. And so that's how restaurants were skirting the law. Wow. And so the kids were angry and they're like, you know what, we need to, we need to talk to the president and get this changed. And so as kids go, they wanted to go to the top. <laughs> yeah. And the teachers dialed down their expectations and said, hey, 
how about we talk to our state rep? And so they contacted her and the kids created, you know, professional presentations dressed up and she came in and they presented and explained why they thought that shark products should all be banned in the state of Virginia. And she was really impressed and they had a good showcase and all that. And yeah. things moved on. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, a year later, this woman, this local state rep was now the um, representative um, Lexton, I believe is her name. And she is now currently at the federal level. So she's no longer at the state. She moved up and she's in the House of Representatives. And she sent them back a message to their school and said that we just passed a bill in the House outlawing the uh, sale of, of uh, shark products in right. the United States. Now, it hasn't gone through the Senate. It hasn't become law yet, but yeah. this all came from their work and how powerful that is these kids to realize that, Fabulous. you know, you don't have to, you know, you could be in government someday. No, you can talk to your representative and influence yeah. them right now. Right, right. I love it. So, so you have written a book with Matinga. Yeah, Regats. Regats. And so tell us a little bit about that. And I will have all this information in the show's notes. So. Sure. Again, our book is called Pulse of PBL. And this book. Pulse is really of PBL. Pulse, okay. like your heartbeat. Okay, good. And this book is really about the intersection of project-based learning and social emotional learning. And there's not a ton of theory in this book. This book is for the believers. If you want research, it's out there. It's kind of our philosophy that we say. Yeah. And this book is written for teachers and it is stories and practical strategies wow. on how to actually teach, practice, and assess those SEL competencies on the daily. And so we really want to give the tools to the teachers to make this happen in their classroom. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, great. Um, is there anything else we should hear from you or learn from you or what would you like us to know <laughs> besides everything? <laughs> uh, do you want me to share my contact stuff or? Uh, sure, you can. And that'll be in the show's notes too. Sure. Okay. If people want to connect with me, uh, there's pulseofpbl.com. There's also my blog at michaelcackley.com. And I post a daily resource on Facebook under uh, SEL and PBL that's either related to SEL, PBL, or both. Fantastic. Well, I love that it's so, so practical, and um, but it's also so respectful of kids and each individual kid. And um, just, you know, if teachers could just be supported in this kind of teaching, then I think that people would very much want to be in this profession because this is beautiful and this is this is that mutual respect that we're all we all want. Yeah. And, that, and that's one of our goals too is that teachers fall in love with teaching again. Uh, of like course. have fun. Of course. Do meaningful work. Right. Watch the and, lights go on in the kids' yeah. eyes. Yeah. It, it doesn't get any better seeing a kid fired up about learning no it does not it absolutely does not all right this has been an absolute pleasure thank you again for all your time and your flexibility with us getting over the tech 
problems and uh, I hope to be in touch with you. And thank you very, very much, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Wow, what an enriching conversation with another inspired and inspiring educator. All of Mike's contact info is in this show's notes, and I trust you'll want to learn more about what he's bringing to uplift, enrich, and support both teachers and students for everyone's benefit. Speaking of benefit, if you're gaining value from this podcast, it would be a real help if you'd post a rating and review and or please do join fellow Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast listeners on the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast Facebook page. We are in this together, and that's what takes our challenges from impossible to doable. So my deepest gratitude and respect to everyone here. Until next time.